welcome to Poet in Bangkok. I'm Colin Cheney. And I'm Donald Quist. Every episode, we'll hear stories from writers, artists, dancers, and journalists, and musicians. Basically, anyone we can get to talk with us. And Donald and I are going to try to cobble together some sort of larger story about making art and expressing yourself during this era of military rule here in Thailand. How, for example, do government restrictions on speech impact post-punk bands? Or comic books? Or avant-garde dance troops? Do filmmakers and poets, knowing the potential backlash from government officials or just from their fellow citizens, do they censor themselves long before their work ever appears on the stage or on the printed page? And what are the stories that we're not hearing? And what will it take for these stories to finally find their way into the world? We don't know, and we're going to see what we can figure out. In this first episode, we speak with cartoonist and artist Kathy McLeod about inventing the cartoon versions of herself, why she hasn't sought out a community of fellow comic book artists in Bangkok, and how painting the sex tourists of Soy Cowboy helped her clarify why she makes art in the first place. But first, why are you listening to this podcast? No, seriously, why are you listening to our podcast? (laughs) Poet in Bangkok is, if I'm honest, uh, born out of embarrassment. Uh, I've lived in Thailand for more than five years now, and I moved here to write a book of poems. And I thought that I'd really quickly get thick as thieves with this great gang of Thai poets. But my New England mind got like totally overwhelmed by by Bangkok. And my efforts (laughs) to make sense of the city and my poems have been... Uh, totally frustrated. Thailand makes me feel every day like I don't understand the world, and that sometimes can be a creatively generative uh, thing, but it can also be seriously confounding. And I honestly didn't like Bangkok all that much uh, when I first moved here. I thought maybe that I could plow through all of that uh, and write something like Federico Garcia Lorca's Poet in New York, a vivid, bewildered, surreal account of feeling totally out of place and angry and terrified at the city that you find yourself in. Lorca's book was born out of his uh, time in New York during the Great Depression. Uh, and this like totally beautiful, terrifying poems carry this critique of the rampant capitalism and racial prejudice that he observed there. But I am clearly no Garcia Lorca and my poems just couldn't handle Bangkok. <laughs> so I know you, you came to Bangkok with the idea of being able to capture Bangkok in your poetry and saying you sort of weren't able to accomplish that. Have you been inspired to create, I guess, new kinds of work? I mean, I'm still writing some poems. Mm-hmm. I've, tr- I've tr- kind of turned my back on poems that are trying to make sense of Bangkok and I'm at the moment. I'm just kind of writing Mars poems for my three-year-old daughter. I'm just oh, kind of cool. enjoying that. Kind of utterly stealing Ted Hughes's <laughs> Moon Whales and other Moon <laughs> poems idea. Uh, I just kind of yeah, trying to loosen my make make the make the poems a little more joyful because my poems can be a little fraught. I realize now that my unease in Bangkok and my struggles to make art out of it were probably largely due to the fact that I was living inside a pretty solid depression that didn't get diagnosed until um, until relatively recently. Anyway, I did finally I did finally meet some people, uh, some Thai and Burmese poets and a scattering of American and British writers here, mostly journalists, and, and then you. 
Donald. Hey. So Donald and I decided to kind of go after this nagging embarrassment. Maybe it's just my nagging embarrassment. I shouldn't put that on you. <laughs> there are things I'm embarrassed about. Um, I've been here like three years and all I know how to do is really like my tie is, is garbage and all I can do is tell the taxi driver to go left and right or straight and order food. I feel like I should know more about my home than that. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I would say it's mutual embarrassment. <laughs> All right, you're so not alone. So we're both going after this nagging embarrassment. And so we decided to get some people on tape uh, and share with you what we're able to figure out and also try to give you a sense of what life uh, is like here in Thailand um, two years after a coup. Hmm. So, Donald, how about you? Where, are you? where are you coming from? I'm coming from the States, like you. Yeah, coming from America. I arrived here in November of 2012. My plane landed just as the Harbinger was landing on Mars, which I thought was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, thought that was pretty cool. I was kind of like an astronaut. Yeah, you're de- yeah, yeah, yeah. Thailand is definitely, yeah. definitely, uh, definitely like Mars. Right. I'm not say. saying I'm not an astronaut, <laughs> or that I, you could, or that you couldn't have been right. one. Right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> or that I couldn't have been one. Yeah, you should have put yourself yeah. into the lottery. I right. Don't know yeah, I could have. I could have put myself in the lottery. <laughs> yeah. But um, so I've been here since November, um, 2012. So. After that, just trying my best to acclimate to Bangkok. Um, like you said, it, it can be very overwhelming. I have a lot of questions a lot of the time. It's kind of like being a little kid again, um, wanting to know how things work. And I'm here with my wife, and she's Thai. I have a lot of questions, and she gets sort of annoyed because I'm asking all the time, well, what's this? Why is this? Well, so, w- yeah, so what sort of questions are does she get most annoyed by? Give me an example <laughs> okay, of that. Like, an example, um, I, I ask her a lot of traffic questions because I don't drive. I don't drive here. I haven't driven in Bangkok in probably like two years. Um, so I'll ask a lot of questions about why. <laughs> Just things she couldn't, she could never answer. Like, why aren't people on motorbikes wearing helmets or are there any rules about having like infants in your arms as you steer a motorbike <laughs> of course she doesn't know the answer to that no one knows the answer to but that what, give me an example of like her response to that if you ask like what if that that question of like why yeah. you know, is there is there a rule about carrying an infant while you're on a motorbike yeah. like what would her response to that be? her response to that would be figure it out and that's that's been her answer increasingly over the last few months. So when you came to me with this idea of starting a podcast to get questions answered, I really wanted to jump at the chance because I felt like, okay, now is a chance for me to talk to people who might be able to answer my questions, not just about everyday life, but also about art, which I've been on the search for since I got here. When I came to Bangkok, I came with the idea of becoming invested in art in Bangkok. It sounds like we're both in this space, which I guess we're interrogating that space as much as anything is like, why has it been so difficult for two guys who love writing and love art to figure a way in or a way to understand that community? Because I, yeah, I'm, I'm a little, I'm embarrassed, but I'm also a little bewildered, right. you know, and it's, again, it's not that I have, I've, I've met some great Thai writers and artists and musicians, but I still feel like I, 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 having lived here, and as you say, having made this my home for five years, I should have a better sense of that. And so I'm just sort of, I'm really, I'm, I'm curious about, so I think that 
that's, I guess, why you're listening to Poet in Bangkok. And that's why we're making something called Poet in Bangkok, because we're some writers trying to figure out what that means to be in a place where you're utterly bewildered and trying to make some art out of it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, trying to get folks here to, to help us understand that so we can then share that with with you wherever you might be, yeah. whether here in Bangkok or back in Baltimore. Well, on each episode, we're going to take a couple minutes to talk a little bit about some topic that'll help paint the picture of life here in Thailand. And today, we wanted to talk a little bit about attitude adjustment. So, Colin, what's the deal with attitude adjustment? Well, Thailand had a coup in May of 2014. Uh, And since then, hundreds of political figures and journalists and academics have been required by the military junta, which is also known as the National Council for Peace and Order, or NCPO, to attend, uh, required them to attend sessions of what they call attitude adjustment. The government sees these, quote, cooling off sessions, as they call them, as a way to get ties of all political uh, persuasions and colors on the same page for the, the supposed greater good of the country, to avoid further strife and conflict uh, and create happiness. And that word is, is used very often, happiness often. Uh, among all ties. Um, As one government spokesman said in the Bangkok Post, one of the English language newspapers recently, quote, please see it as an exchanging of views in a straightforward manner in order to have the same understanding for the sake of the country. It is not a violation of rights, he said. But domestic and international rights organizations see these sessions as something a little bit different. They see them as detentions that violate the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. So during these sessions, uh, these guests, as the government uh, calls them, uh, are taken to different undisclosed locations, army barracks sometimes, or houses or garages. And when they're not being interrogated by their military hosts, they're kept in isolation and not allowed contact with the outside world. Uh, And most guests are made to sign a document uh, stating that they will refrain from future political activity of any kind, uh, or criticizing uh, the regime in any way, and they must receive permission from the government before leaving Thailand. Um, So that's my basic sense. That's my basic sense of attitude adjustment. What I'm curious about is uh, how have you experienced, have you experienced anything related Mm -hmm. to attitude adjustment since being there? I mean, are there any stories that you can tell about, about how this has impacted your life I don't know. I don't know if I could fairly say it's touched my life, but I have seen it. So I, I, I'm a professor or a teacher at a university here in Bangkok, very popular university. And every semester, uh, the dean and the administration gathers us together. And this semester, uh, she gathered us and she gave us a warning. Usually she gives us warnings. She tells us to be mindful of the things we say to the students and to make sure we're not being overtly political. So what, yeah, like what would, I mean, would those warnings be explicit? Like previous the, years, what have the warnings been? So in previous years, the warnings have been things like, um, she always packages it very nicely. She'll say, um, now remember, you're here as educators. You're not here to change anyone's opinion about anything or teach anyone about politics your English teachers keep your political beliefs to yourself and just recently this semester um, at the start of this year's 
meeting, she gave us a story about how this past summer she had to go pick up one of the teachers from jail. Um, the teacher had been detained. So Is this somebody you knew? She won't tell us who it is. Um, and, and you yeah, don't know yourself who it is. And I don't know is. myself okay. who it is. And I don't... <laughs> I don't think I need to know. I, message received. Yeah. Message received. Do you have um, a sense of what they were in jail for? Um, I think they might have said something about the regime. Yeah, I think they might have. Oftentimes, uh, the teachers, they can get sort of comfortable with the students and they might forget <laughs> um, that not everyone... It's almost like living in like a McCarthy era time in the States, you know, you don't know who is listening to what you're going to say mm -hmm. and you don't know what they might repeat and mm -hmm. you don't know how far that might reach and what the implications of that might be. Mm. And so this teacher just overreached, I guess, and said something that they shouldn't have said. And because of it, our Dean had to go pick them up from a jail cell in an undisclosed location at a, really late hour so she gave us a, a healthy warning it makes me a little nervous to to say things living here in thailand i i experience a lot more freedoms than i did actually living in the states as an african-american male so here i worry less about being detained or mm. i can worry less about police brutality on my person so it's yeah. super interesting and super sad is that have you been stopped here just as a yeah. foreigner i was stopped once but actually it was my wife who was stopped i just happened to be in the car a cop stopped us and told us that our car he said there's a law that your car can only be one color seems um, reasonable seems, <laughs> so your car can only be one color then he he asked my wife for some type of proof that she got permission to have her car she drives a prius and the top was black um but the car itself is white. she wanted she wanted to trick it out she wanted to trick it out yeah she wanted to trick it out and it was it was it was cool it was a cool looking car um and so it's <laughs> a really cool so that's prius. Why, maybe that's why we got stopped you know we yeah were, they were trying to catch us riding dirty and so like we <laughs> we he pulls us over and then um we're we're there for about 45 minutes i was actually on my way to meet you yeah, for oh, that's right. Meeting. I yeah. remember that now. Yeah, 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 I was on my way to meet you, and so um, we're there for forty-five minutes. I nudge my wife. I tell her, "You know what this is about. You know what you have to do." Yeah, an arrangement had to be reached. Yeah, our arrangement has. You know what you need to do, but that's about as bad as it gets. I don't have to worry about you know getting stomped out or getting flipped over in a desk or anything. So, yeah, I mean, I've I've only been stopped by the cops here once, and. And it was, it was right outside of my apartment, and it was a, like two weeks after there had been a, I don't know if this was when you were here, but there had been a, what they said was a bomb making lab, uh, in like a in a house about a mile from my house in central Bangkok, had exploded and killed one person. I, I think, heard about and, this. And yeah. um, turned out it was Iranian nationals, and one of the guys I gathered went out in the street and and tried to hail a cab with a bomb in his hand and the cab wouldn't stop. Uh, and as I heard it, he tried to throw the bomb at the cab, but it bounced off of the cab and bounced up back and blew off his own legs. Wow. Uh, some dark humor yeah. uh, there, but uh, I was stopped after that and uh, by two motorcycle cops and 
they kept asking me where I'm from. You know, is it because of the beard? Uh, I, I might be. I, I don't know. Okay. I don't know what it was. Right. It was dusk. Yeah. Uh, and I was right outside my apartment and and uh, they're like, where are you from? I was like, I live here. I live here. And like gesturing at the, you know, the guards, yeah. the guards right there in my building. And he's sort of waving at me not coming over. I'm like, thanks. It's super helpful. I was like, no, I live right here. They're like, where are you from? And I was like, oh, I'm from America. And then they started going through my bag and they, wow. you know, they found this paper bag, this white paper bag and said, I like cop. Just mm. what is this? Brownie cup. <laughs> it was a brownie that I was bringing home to my wife. And, and, they sort of, brownie. and they very sort of delicately opened it and saw indeed it was a, a peanut butter brownie for my pregnant wife. But it, it's, it's super strange because I, I remember when they, I remember right after the coup, I remember when they started announcing people's names on the, on the TV and on the radio and names of people that needed to report. Right. And I remember when those, I don't even, I don't know whether they were taken in for attitude adjustment or just a plane up arrested, but there were those kids that were arrested at some of the malls for flashing the, the three fingered hunger game right. salute uh, in protest and eating sandwiches and reading 1984 uh, in protest. And, and knowing that I could, if I wanted to get arrested quite easily for doing yeah. any one of those things. I could join in in that and and feeling in solidarity with people that were protesting this and yet and yet feeling I don't know if you felt anything like this but it's sort of this sense of like feeling like I don't know feeling sort of cowardly not doing something not sort yes. of not mm. not kind of not going up there in the mall and flashing the Hunger Games salute. Right. I, I mean it sounds ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> But that's what these kids were doing, and they were getting arrested for yeah. doing it, or for eating sandwiches, or for reading 1984 in public, knowing I could very easily get arrested for that and not doing it. And just feeling conflicted about that, but just feeling like I'm not, you know, I'm not from this place. People will, ties will often say to foreigners that you really don't understand, you right. don't understand. Yeah. And, you know, there's a big part of me that knows that that's absolutely true. On right. the other hand, you know, kids getting locked up by police officers i think that's pretty universal yeah. <laughs> but yeah it has gotten me it has gotten me thinking a lot about about freedom of speech and about what freedom of speech means in a place where there is not freedom of speech <laughs> and what it would take for a person to to speak a, in, in a climate like that knowing that that you're going to be taken in it's very easy and i'm sure you feel this it's very easy to living in a military dictatorship to just kind of cast judgment upon this place yes. and that yeah. and that climate. But then I look back to the U.S. Right. And <laughs> the American police and military complexes committing these egregious acts of... Constantly. Of violations of personal liberties yeah. of both foreign but also American right. uh, citizens. I mean, the, 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 the prison at Gitmo, uh, solitary confinement at Rikers... I mean, the CIA black sites after 9-11, the first of which was like, I don't know, a couple hundred miles from here. Mm. I don't know. It just really got me. It, it's, it is humbling, you know, and just I don't. Obviously, those are different, but the similarity is, is eerie, <laughs> you know. And so, the, you know, people in those situations are obviously having their attitudes adjusted in some pretty fucked up ways. Yeah. Scary ways. Scary oh. ways. So. So I guess that's a little that's a little backdrop on 
for this interview with Kathy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nice, excellent segue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, too. Talking I don't know how you Kathy. go. I don't know how you go from a black site into. Yeah, that's sort of the problem. Well, actually, yeah. yeah um, well, that's a fair point. Yes. Yeah, yeah, actually, yeah. So, <laughs> so it's about time for our interview with Kathy. Um, we had a fantastic time interviewing Kathy here at the Freeze Green Club. Kathy was really the first person I wanted as a guest on this podcast. I'm a great admirer of her work and the compassion her illustrations evoke. It's philosophical in many ways, very self-reflexive, but not self-absorbed. She finds universality in exploring herself. Kathy also has an eye for the city and its characters that I find interesting, and I'm really excited to be able to talk to her about it. All right, let's go to our interview with Kathy McLeod. Your parents met here in Bangkok? Yep. In a restaurant. Where did they meet, your parents? At the... My mom told me recently, the there was a restaurant in the basement of the Swiss Hotel, Swiss Hotel, at Nylert, mm-hmm. Swiss Hotel Nylert Park, and my mom was managing a restaurant, and my dad was eating there. And, when was um, this? Circa? So I, I don't know exactly what year they met, um, but I think my dad was still involved in like his, his CIA stuff, which I didn't find out about until just a few years ago. So your dad was in the CIA? Yeah. Did you okay. know that? I don't think I know that. Knew that. Now I do know it presently. Because <laughs> yeah, I just told you. <laughs> so he was in the, you found out about that recently? Yeah. I thought um, he was just a retired school teacher or had been, and had been in the Coast Guard. That was all I knew. Because he, um, I think after he left or retired from the CIA, he was teaching English, sort of like all expats do here, right. you know, and, um, but that was just sort of a, a way to keep busy. Um, my dad kept a lot of files just um, on little floppy disks, you know, those old um, A drives. And there was one day I was on our old computer, which still has that disk drive. And um, he had just, for fun, I guess, written a timeline of his life. Um, and I was very surprised to see um, a bunch of entries about where he was. You know, the, it, at one point it said, oh, joined the Central Intelligence Agency. I forget what year. I should just give you that timeline. And then um, he was in a lot of um, key places in Southeast Asia, including the evacuation of Phnom Penh. And... Um, so just this year, actually, I shared that information with my friend Patrick Wynn, who's a journalist, and he became really, really fascinated with it. And just on his own, without even telling me about it, he um, did some research. He called the U.S. ambassador at that time, who remembered my dad and told him a lot of, just a lot of stuff about, <laughs> I mean, that can be for another podcast, wow. just about um, his role in that. And it was a pretty... A, much bigger role than I thought, um, I mean, than I ever would have imagined, you know. He was pretty instrumental in getting Americans out of Phnom Penh right when it all, you know, started going down. Which, at the, and then Patrick actually put this all together in like a PDF and put it, or he printed it out, put it in a manila envelope and gave it to me just out of nowhere. And the day he gave it to me was actually my dad's birthday. Um, well, my dad, 
passed away um, about 10 years ago, 12 years ago. So obviously I didn't have the chance to ask him all this myself, but when he gave it, gave me all this information, I really felt, I mean, my first reaction was I felt horrible and really guilty because I never knew that he had done, you know, so much heroic stuff. I thought like, I don't know. I thought he was kind of a loser or like just kind of, I was like, you know, a teenager and I always found him annoying and just, you know, I don't know. I feel like I want to believe that all teenage girls go through a phase where they just think their dads are annoying and (laughs) are mean to them. And, you know, that was, I never got a chance to grow out of that because he passed away when I was still young. So, you know, I felt pretty, pretty guilty finding out that he was like this amazing guy who had accomplished a lot of historical shit. (laughs) (laughs) After you got that manila envelope from Patrick, uh, what sort of conversation did you have with your mom about any of that? I never talked to my mom about it. You know, that, I mean, that might be even more weird that I just didn't bring it up. I mean, I asked her a little bit. She knew about all of this. You know, this wasn't a secret to her. I don't know. I think my mom and I don't really have the kind of relationship where I could just bring it up. And I think she might have found it weird that my friend had gone, you know, done all this digging and that. I don't know. It actually didn't really occur to me to talk to my mom about this. I mean, I could keep going forever on this particular <laughs> I know, particular we just jumped right I'm into sort of, this. I'm just sort of blown away right now. <laughs> Were either of your parents artistic? Were either of them, did you pick that up from either your mom or your dad from a young age, drawing, coloring, oh, totally. making up stories? Yeah, um, well, I can start with my grandfather, who he kept a diary every day for about 40 years. Well, no, hold on, uh, about 30 years. Every single day, he had one of those old-fashioned um, agendas where, you know, every day, every page was one day, and he would just fill up the entire page and end exactly, you know, the the period of the last sentence would be in the lower right-hand corner or the, the corner of the page. So he would, and this was every day of his life for decades. And I, I have one of those, but they're, they're like rows of, um, bookshelves of those diaries and they're really boring there's like nothing ha- I mean it's just like nothing emotional it's just um it always started with I got out of bed or sometimes it was leapt out of bed or rolled out of bed or sprung out of bed every the first line was always how he got out of bed and then you know what he ate for lunch who stopped by and but I remember just having these books around as a kid and I started keeping a diary when I was 10 and have sort of more or less kept up with it ever since. My dad wasn't, he didn't keep a diary, but he wrote letters all the time. Always kept in touch with his his buddies from the military or from, I guess, the CIA. Now I look back at some weird friends of his and think they were probably in the CIA. I feel like both my dad and my grandfather were really into just like keeping records of what happened, what was happening. Could you talk a little bit about about diary keeping and how that relates to to the way that you, I don't know, started started drawing or started translating? Um, yeah, um, as soon as I learned to write, I, I found a, a sketchbook from when I was about four 
and was just starting to learn to write words. And there were drawings in the in the book as well um, to go with. I think the first was like, I saw a bird or something, and there's a little drawing of a bird. And I think to me, and then ever since then, there have always been drawings in the margins of my of my diaries and stuff. It just, the two always seemed to be linked. The drawings, I mean, just drawing as well. It just seems to be a way to slow time down. Since my drawings are, my artwork is pretty autobiographical. If I go for a long time without doing it, like there was a year recently where I didn't draw at all. And it feels like that year is just lost. Like it never happened because I have no record of it. It feels like it's just lost. I think even when I started keeping a diary as a kid, I felt like that was my way of just proving that I existed. I, you know, I was also had such a big ego as a kid that <laughs> this is going to sound so bad, but I remember reading, hearing about Anne Frank's diary and thinking like my diary is so much, if my diary is published, it would be just as popular as Anne Frank's diary. <laughs> There's no reason why it it wouldn't be. But, um... I mean, can you kind of identify, like, the first cartoon that you drew or the first comic? Um, I remember the early comics. Well, I'd... Yeah, getting back to my dad, it was for him. There was one time where I was really angry with him because he... I think, um... Most of the time when I got mad at my dad is because I thought he was... He loved my sister more than me. And so I drew a comic about it. It was, you know, really passive aggressive. Um, just really, a really exaggerated version of how I felt he was, you know, being unfair. And I think I must've been seven or eight or eight or nine. It was in elementary school. And I, I slipped it under his door and he wrote one back another because he would he wasn't really good at drawing but he liked drawing stick figure comics and stuff like that so he drew one back about me being a brat i guess (laughs) um and slipped it under my door and it i think for a whole week a week or so um there was this war of comics and I found them recently. He actually collected them and put them all in a binder later. And I found the binder and it's it's really amazing. It means a lot to me, but it's just like, God, I was such a, I was a brat, you know, but I, I felt like if I voiced my objections in comic form, it was more and made it kind of funny that maybe he would react more openly, you know, be more open about listening to, you know, to how I was feeling. That's a pretty. That's a pretty amazing record and a pretty amazing dynamic. Did you have a? Did you ever write or draw a comic for your mom with a similar edge to it? Which, which she? How would she have responded? Or how did she respond? We had a different relationship. I think my my mom was like, if there was a good cop and bad cop, I think my dad and I had a more more amicable relationship. I know it sounds weird because we argued a lot, but it was more like we were like equals, you know, we could debate stuff and fight about stuff. And he, you know, would sort of listen, take me more seriously. I think my mom was more of a parent, you know, she would, she, I was more scared of her, I think. 
and we had less of a like a friendship, I guess. Does she read your comics? I give them to her, but she's she says the font is too small. <laughs> she always complains. <laughs> she'll, she'll, she'll look at them and sit, and then be like, Kathy, why don't you why don't you write the words bigger? Because I can't read them. But she'll she'll keep them, and she always picks up BK. <laughs> the fact that the font is too small kind of prevents her from reading them. Do you think that's her honest? Is that, is that is that honestly what is going on there, or is that a little bit of a? Is that a? Is that a? Is that a nice and convenient way to not engage whoever you are and on the page there? Maybe the latter. <laughs> I don't know. I don't take it personally that she doesn't really like delve in and read read my comics and see what I'm all about. I think she's fine just having. A relationship with me outside of the comics and that's like you know she might not even really know the extent to which it's I see it as an extension of myself I think she just sees it as something I really enjoy doing and you know that is my thing now I was reading don't go home yet um, your collection this weekend um, and there's a part in there where you describe how your memory, a lot of what you remember comes from your comics and you're remembering your comics more than you're remembering the actual events. Yeah. yeah the, the illustrations of the events. So do you think of yourself as a character? <laughs> Sometimes. Mm. It helps me a lot to think of myself that way, to be honest. Um, like if I'm going through a hard time, it is helpful i don't do it all the time but it it is therapeutic in a way to draw myself going through that hard time as a character um or you know just somehow put it through that filter it sort of lets me take a step back or you know be more distanced from what's going on and observe it instead of being too caught up in it yeah it helps me be kinder to myself i think to see myself as an adorable cartoon instead of a horrible monster or whatever it's a way of just being gentle with myself have you noticed that that different versions of yourself i mean as you look back on the last couple of years of yourself in those comic strips do you see a changing self or do you see that a couple of years ago you kind of hit upon a certain way that you liked to exist or found that you did exist mm -hmm. in the comics. Hmm. I'm thinking of when I first started drawing them, you know, quote unquote seriously, they didn't have a, the characters didn't have mouths or noses and they're pretty, um, pretty abstract. And then as they got more expressive, I think the comics got more, more open and I started being more open with them. You know, just expressing more and revealing more in the, the comics. And now, I don't know. Now, I've definitely gotten so used to drawing the characters, especially the character of myself, that um, it's become more standard. You know, like the way that, like when you draw Hello Kitty, there's specifications that don't ever change. And now when I draw myself, it tends to look the same most of the time. I don't know where I'm going with this. I feel like it's hit this plateau of... And now I'm at this point where I don't 
I want to get, you know, I haven't drawn comics like, like the ones you you read, Donald, in a long time. Like the, these personal, long form, like essays, basically. I don't know. I'm trying to figure out what to do next, how I want to express myself next. I've been thinking about changing the character, you know, like the silhouette and make her look more like how I actually look. Because I, th I feel like I'm growing out of that, that silhouette. I don't know. I, I think about this a lot, but I haven't actually really done anything to towards, you know, evolving it. So thinking about changing your fictional self, um, do you ever feel when you're making a comic that you have a responsibility to, I guess, the truth or a responsibility to your memory to make things as real as they were? Yeah, I, um, well, I was listening to this interview with Mary Carr on Fresh Air. She's a memoirist and she was talking about how she would cut hundreds said hundreds of pages because they didn't feel true to her, not because they didn't, um, not because they weren't accurate, but because they weren't the emotional thing that she wanted to express. And I've been feeling that way in general, not that I have anything, I've been working on anything in particular that I feel like deleting, but there have been times where I start drawing something and I think like, you know, this is all true, but it's, it's, I'm expressing it in a way that, like, the way I'm expressing it is, is old and needs to change. You know, that I, I'm expressing sort of the same things in the same ways. And if I want to express something even truer, I have to change the way I'm, I have to, lately the way I've been feeling is, I don't want to over explain things. I want to somehow show them, maybe in a more abstract way or a more, I don't know, more poetic way or more something subconscious, you know? So thinking about the future of your work, so far your work's been very internalized, very mm -hmm. interior. Do you think you'll start thinking of more external things like covering politics or the Mars mission or anything outside? I've never been interested in drawing about politics. I don't feel like there's anything special about my views on politics or on Mars that are so different that would justify making them that, you know, there's no, nothing special about my opinions on these topics that anyone would want to read. You know, I don't have any hot takes on either of these things. I do see myself keeping things internal, but of course the internal is shaped by, by what is happening around me. And I don't know why, but just as you're, as you were talking about that, it, it got me thinking about how, especially as you think about the new silhouette that you might create what's behind that silhouette right the the world that is that that silhouette is moving in front of right and sort of the way that bangkok obviously is a huge character in uh in through that book and certainly in in your paintings um in the show that you put on recently at wtf mm -hmm. do you want to say a few things yeah. about about what that project was about and and how you identified all of those different species of uh, expats that you were going to uh, <laughs> render? Yeah, I um, I think I just got tired of drawing about myself. And I don't know how it, it started. I, I mean, I really liked Where's Waldo as a kid, and that really informed 
the build your own Bangkok artwork a lot. Maybe we could post a, a couple images on the on the website of the of a couple of those different paintings. But uh, those are it was uh, for those listeners who are not in in Bangkok. I mean, you picked soy cowboy. How would you describe soy cowboy? Um, it's sort of like Disneyland of sex tourism. <laughs> it's oh, it's okay. So what it is is a it's a really narrow alleyway that's lined with um, go-go bars. And the street is pink because of all the neon light on either side. And everyone on it is pink. It's it's very, very neon. <laughs> and and l- the ladies stand outside. So it's just a gauntlet of, of ladies, basically. And I don't know, everyone is just trying to get your attention. If you're, I guess if you're a, a man, you know, you can't really walk two feet without someone grabbing you or, you know, calling you handsome. But it's kind of more, um, I feel like a lot of it is more show than other, there are other places in Bangkok that are a lot grittier and a bit more depressing. I think I haven't really gone to Nana Plaza or anywhere like that, but I think Soi Cowboy is the most tourist friendly, that and Padpong. I don't know. I was really scared to go there at first. And I was trying to just look at photos online of the place. And I knew I knew that I would have to go there. And I was really dreading it. But I got up, got a group of friends and it wasn't intimidating at all. I don't know what I was scared of. I was scared of like, I don't know, just falling into a sex dungeon or something, you know, <laughs> like a neon sex dungeon. I don't know, just taking the wrong turn and and then having just a sex pad's penis fall on my head or so, I don't know. I I was just nervous. It's not an but, unreasonable fear. Yeah. It's not yeah. an unreasonable fear. But it's, people just go there to drink a lot of the time. They don't necessarily go to have sex or, you know, pick up a prostitute. I mean, that's the same thing. But um, you can just go there and have a fun evening and not feel... Like you're being compromised in some way. One of the things I loved about your show is that uh, you captured so many great details. And I feel like you really captured some of the archetypes that we see around the city. Um, Do you think Bangkok is an easy city to caricature or to satirize through comics and illustration? I think so. Especially when it comes to people who visit Bangkok. Like sex pats are very... (laughs) They're very easy to pick out, but even within sex pet culture, there's you know subgroups. And I lo- I could do a whole other exhibition on just sex pets. I feel like our whole other <laughs> book. I love them. <laughs> it's interesting because just thinking about, well, let's stick to soy cowboy. When you're when you're when you're <laughs> when you're recreating soy cowboy and all of the characters on that soy on the, in that narrow alley, I mean, is that is that a complex? ethical experience in any way because it's there's so many there's so many kinds of people there and there's so many reasons that they're there the life stories that draw each of those different subspecies of sex bat to that particular location are fascinating as as are the the stories of of how the the sex workers find themselves there i mean what's that like to to engage with that subject in that you know on the canvas i think yeah it's i i get nervous i guess uh, talking about you know draw- drawing types of people and how i felt doing it because i i was really conscious 
um, while working on it, and especially of writing the field guide that came with the exhibition of, I didn't want to just stereotype people and pigeonhole them, even though that was what I was doing and what the field guide was, was, you know, listing types of people and what their characteristics are. But I didn't want to I don't know, I didn't want it to be set in stone or to imply that I really actually do know everything about these people. Especially, you know, when it comes to something like the people who are in Soy Cowboy, there is a lot of um, tragedy and a lot of just maybe not, you know, it's just perfectly... I don't want to be judgmental about why, um, about anything about sex work. I'm pretty positive about that stuff. Um, so I don't want to look like I'm yeah, passing any sort of judgment. So I, there was one, this is kind of a divergence, but my friend, again, Patrick Wynn and I like to look at sex pet blogs and we came across this one, this one writer who frequented these, these message boards talking about his experiences with, um, with sex workers here. And his writing was so real <laughs> so raw so dark and so there's just something very human and very um we just we really connected with it and we wanted to make a graphic novel out of it we thought it would make an amazing comic and it's a really long story we wanted to get his permission and just couldn't find him but we drew a, a sample or i drew a sample which involved this this writer who's God, I guess I should just mention his name. His, his handle was Young Penfold. And there was a, it was just a very dark anecdote about, that, that ended with him, um, like having anal sex with a lady boy in a, like a slum bathroom in, uh, Klongdoy. And I drew a picture of it and it was so cute. It was so, um, so, like you could, I don't know, I was really pleased with this picture because it was kind of, dark and dingy but still like lovable you know I mean I at least I thought it was and it could be all of those things and it wasn't like I don't know that you could get the darkness of a story across without making any where am I going with this why did I tell this whole story when I draw people it's my way of I don't know it's just I do it lovingly you know it's my way of just loving them I, I don't, it's not making fun of them. It's like, I do it all out of love. And I don't know, I hope that comes across. You know, when you read your collection of comics, Don't Go Home Yet, it is very clear that you've been through some pretty dark <laughs> periods. <laughs> but the way in which you recreate those, the way in which you, you, you translate those into comics is with a lot of, is with a lot of a lot of love and a lot of uh, I mean it's a lot of self critique it seems but also you're, it seems like you're trying to be gentle with yourself uh, in terms of some of those some of that darkness so I don't know it just strikes me that it must have been hard to to draw some of those periods of your own life I feel like my drawing style hasn't evolved that much from since I was a kid there's this childlike style I don't always like when people use the word childlike or childish I don't like but it, it feels like I don't know if I were to draw some of that stuff in a really hyper realistic style or like like a superhero comic like a gritty very representational style it it 
you know, it would say something very different, I think, or it would have a totally different tone. But I think the style that I use is sort of just the style itself is, for some reason, I keep thinking of the word editorializing it in a way that's friendlier, or that's more like almost like looking at it through the eyes of a child, or my inner child, or like during those dark periods, like the were you writing about yourself honestly in your diary or were you lying to yourself? <laughs> I was writing about myself pretty honestly, maybe feeling more negatively about myself than I um, looking at it now. I don't feel so harshly about myself than I did back then, but I didn't really leave anything out and I didn't, you know, wasn't glossing over it. But yeah, I was like, really hated myself for a long time and just thought I was the worst person ever. And now, you know, it's it's kind of fun. I can draw about that and draw myself as the worst person ever. I can draw myself as like the monster that I thought it was. And it's funny. It looks cute. You know, it's not, it's just the way I naturally draw. But when I draw the stuff that was going on in my head, it just comes out as more lovable than it was to actually experience it but it can it doesn't mean it's not honest like it's um it can still be sad and it can still be you know maybe heavy but the way it looks is more inviting i guess it's like this is like i'm inviting you to experience it with me and you know get through it when i was reading when i was rereading some of the comics and there are certain moments where you're rendering those periods of depression um, and substance abuse. And there are certain moments where you'll, the narrative will be going along, be very clear narrative, figurative narrative. And then there'll be, there'll be a panel of like shadow and silhouette and like scribbles <laughs> um, where there'll be sort of a moment of where you'll, where you'll sort of fast forward or you'll sort of obscure or you'll, you're, you'll move oh, through that. Yeah. And I was just always curious about those moments, whether that kind of scribbled panel was, a, was, it, was actually like something that you don't have or that you, you sort of have emotionally, but you don't have like textual record of. No, it's, it's more like, I guess there's some stuff that I don't feel like it's necessary to get into the details of, of what that was because... Um, it would bring the whole comic down or it would bring, it would just be too heavy. And I, I, I think about um, Bill Watterson and Calvin and Hobbes. There's all, there's this running joke where Calvin or Hobbes will, will refer to the noodle incident. Do you know this? Yeah. Where it'd be like, Oh, it wasn't as bad as that noodle incident. And Bill <laughs> Watterson said in one of his um, addendums that he never elaborates on what the noodle incident is because it's much, whatever it is, it's guaranteed to be more funny in the, the reader's imagination and I think I sometimes leave out stuff and just you know suggest it because whatever the bad stuff was it's not really necessary to to elaborate on it's the viewer or the I mean the reader can fill in the blanks themselves and it can be more interesting that way instead of just getting into you know all the you know just kind of depressing yeah. stuff I'm just curious about about your your community here in Bangkok. I mean, do you feel like you have have an artistic community, or do you have a a community of just of just good friends? Do you 
do you need an artistic community to create your comics or can you can you create um, without um, other artists around? I don't feel like I have a close community of artists around me. And there is, there, it definitely exists here, but I don't feel really involved in it. And I wonder if that would help. But I've, I've managed to get by the past, um, however long I've been in Bangkok. It hasn't, the lack of that hasn't really affected my comics. But I do wonder, I do think it would be nice sometimes to get feedback and you know build on build on my work with the feedback of others can you give us any glimpse into in any part of the any part of the thai comic scene or art scene i mean is it, it seems like there's a lot of manga a lot of japanese influence a lot of thai translations of of manga but i mean do you know other thai, no. thai creators no not really i feel kind of terrible saying that I don't. They, you know, they even have Comic Con here, don't they? And I haven't been to it. Why? I don't really seek this stuff out. What do you think it is that like keeps you from engaging with that community? Is it is it just lack of shared interest or a uh, shared background? Or I sometimes feel like I'm afraid to connect, or just very hesitant, or just doubtful in my ability to connect with other people in the Thai artist community. I don't know why. I just, um, I, I, but I was like this in the U.S. too when I was living in the, the States. I, I've been to a few conventions in the U.S. And even then I was like maybe afraid to share my work with other people who did the same thing. And I don't know what exactly that fear was, fear of rejection or fear of just not, it's almost like if I don't associate with anyone, if I keep myself totally insulated from the community of comic creators, I can trick myself into thinking that I'm special and I'm unique. And once I start hanging out with other people who are like me or better than me, I'll lose that and I'll I don't know. It's maybe that's what it is. To be honest, it's like it's ego and but fear as well. So you seem to struggle often with uh, self-doubt, yet you continue to produce and create. Um, where does this drive come from? Um, well, I haven't. I feel like I haven't properly. The, the collection you, you guys keep referring to, Don't Go Home Yet, is from a period, when did that come out? That came out maybe two or three years ago. 2013. Okay. That was a really productive time. I would draw those comics constantly. Like every week there was a new one about what had just happened that week and what I was feeling and what thoughts I was having. And now it's, I haven't done any anything like that but maybe I shouldn't use that as a standard. Like I shouldn't force myself to, or think that I should be producing stuff that was like that. The That phase where I was doing so much personal stuff, I didn't really have that many followers and I wasn't really, didn't really have them in mind. And now, especially after my exhibition, um, I've gained a lot of followers and a lot of 
just a lot of um, people reaching out to me and telling me they liked they liked my work, but the what they were introduced to is not personal, really, mm. or it's 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 the stuff where my lens was turned outwards, and maybe that is part of sort of this phase where I'm kind of thinking a lot about what I want to do next is because maybe I'm a little bit af- afraid of getting really personal because I know that maybe more people are, are reading. I don't know. I, I feel like, yeah, before I had one, I don't, what if he listens to this? I just had one kind of creepy guy who was really just a huge fan. And that was maybe my one fan quote unquote, who I didn't know personally. And now I don't know if I have a lot of like obsessive fans, but I I know that a lot of people, just a lot of people I don't know are are, are reading. I'm just afraid of like disappointing people or or just like just revealing who I really am, and then they'll, you know, I think that's just a fear in general, right? Like, um, revealing who you really are, and people still want to know you after that. Well, we just want to thank you so much for, <laughs> thank for taking you this for time to, to talk with talk with us. And we'll put some um we'll put some links to your stuff um up there, but just so we can say it uh here on the on the air. Uh where can people find your stuff online? Oh, um you can visit my website at kathymcleod.com. That's uh if you don't know how to spell that, just look on the podcast <laughs> link. <laughs> so it's myname.com. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you, Kathy. <laughs> thank you, guys. So what I found really interesting about that interview with Kathy is how she talked about not really knowing other comic book artists yeah, in Bangkok. I was, I was really struck by that, too. Yeah. Why... But I'm trying to figure out why I was so struck by it. I guess, I guess it's because when I'm when I moved here, I was really hungry for a community of writers, and I thought that that was, if I had that, that that was going to like really help me adjust to this place and help me in my writing. Um. So I guess I just found it interesting how yeah I mean she produces. She obviously has like a lot. She obviously has a lot of friends. I mean, I'm her friend, <laughs> but um, and I have ended up in her comics, uh, and so I know she writes out of and she creates out of her community. But she doesn't. She doesn't need kind of an artistic community or, or a community that is sort of that is directly kind of working on art together in that way. If that makes any sense, so I guess I'm yeah. just surprised by how much she's able to produce out of isolation where that's something that I really struggle with. I guess, yeah, I guess right. so it's, it's just a very personal hmm. uncertainty. How about you? Why were you, why were you surprised with it? I was surprised about it because actually I, I saw many similarities in myself um, in, in that. Um, I don't know a lot of fiction writers here. Um, I, I know a few writers, but it was almost like by accident. When I, <laughs> part of me being here, I think was a desire for sort of self exile hmm. um a chance to be lost and alone 
Um, and I've almost found a community here on accident. Yeah. <laughs> I found <laughs> you on accident. And so it's kind of, so with, so with Kathy sort of gave voice to stuff I was thinking yeah. or feeling and didn't, didn't realize. So yeah. it really was interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm totally jealous of that. I think that's so awesome. <laughs> I mean, I also was just, I was struck by how she said that she's not really interested in, in writing about wider issues. I mean, she, that she has, that she, she feels that she has nothing to say uh, about, about politics, uh, or I think you asked her about Mars, yeah. uh, you know, doesn't have anything to say about, about either of those things that, that uh, anyone would really be interested in. And I, I mean, I like that. I like, I like that honesty and that humility in that and I probably more people should <laughs> yeah yeah probably more people should uh should feel that way um that no one's interested in in what they have to say about wider issues but I do think it's kind of a loss though I feel like Kathy has a unique voice and perspective that would lend itself nicely to exploring larger yeah no no I think you totally I think you're totally um, right so yeah. that was that was surprising and I hope that changes. <laughs> yeah, so it's, I mean, I don't know. It's going to be interesting uh, going forward, just kind of seeing how some of the other artists we talk to, whether either, whether they echo some of that, same sort of sense of like working in isolation or whether they're sort of, or whether there are like some really, cl- I mean, I, th- I think there are. I think there's, there are some other corners of the art community that seem a bit more tight-knit, but I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm curious about that because... We'll um, find out. We're going to find out. Yeah. We just want to thank Kathy again for giving us so much of her time and and doing this interview with us for the first episode of this uh, of this of this little project of ours. We're going to put some links of her work up on our website, uh, Poet in Bangkok, where you'll also be able to find some of our own musings about launching this podcast and about life here in Bangkok. And you can also follow us on uh, Twitter and uh, Instagram. So thanks to Anna, John, Barry, Patrick, Mark, and Ian for their invaluable help, and to Panacet for designing our awesome logo. Thanks to Martin Pavlinich and his band Reports for the music on today's episode. And thanks again, big thanks, to Paul Inouye at Freeze Green Club, where we're recording this podcast. Tell your friends about us, whether they are into writing, music travel, sometime Thai, or just quirky podcasts in this era of missions to Mars. And whether you live in Bangkok or L.A., Tokyo or Dallas, Yangon or Brooklyn, we hope that you'll keep listening to what we get up to here on Poet in Bangkok. All right, guys, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Thanks.